podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. In early October 1975, newspapers began reporting a story about the strange disappearance of 20 people from the town of Waldport, Oregon. These people had all gone missing after attending a meeting hosted by a mysterious couple known as The Two. The meeting occurred at a hotel called the Bayshore Inn on September 14th. In the weeks before, hundreds of flyers advertising the meeting were posted all over the area. The posters read, UFOs, why are they here? Who they have come for? When will they leave? Not a discussion of UFO sightings or phenomena. Two individuals say they were sent from the level above human and will return to that level in a spaceship within the next few months. This man and woman will discuss how the transition from the human level to the next level is accomplished. And when this may be done, this is not a religious or philosophical organization recruiting membership. However, the information has already prompted a number of individuals to devote their total energy to the transitional process. If you have ever entertained the idea that there might be a real physical level in space beyond the Earth's confines, you will want to attend this meeting. Sunday, September 14th at 2 p.m. Bayshore Inn, Waldport, Oregon, Following the meeting, between 15 and 20 attendees gave away their land and possessions before cutting ties with their friends and families and disappearing without a trace. Young children were abandoned by their parents. Elderly parents woke up to find their middle-aged sons and daughters gone. Many of them said they were heading for a spaceship to take them to a better place. Before long, the local law enforcement was swimming in concerned phone calls from relatives. But there was little the police could do. These were adults who had left of their own free will. Within a few weeks, letters and postcards from the missing Oregonians arrived in the hands of their relatives back home, informing them that they were fine. The mother of a 43-year-old man who had left the town with the group told reporters that she received a telegram from Colorado that read, I am on my way, and you will not hear from me again. The Waldport meeting wasn't the first of its kind. In fact, the two had been touring the United States for nine months, holding meetings in Texas, Colorado, California, and Oregon. Reports put their numbers 
at that time close to 200. Following the enormous negative publicity generated by the Waldport meeting, the group went underground. Recruitment efforts ceased and they fell off the map. Nicknamed the UFO Cult, the group that had captured the loyalty of nearly 20 people in one evening was going by the name of Human Individual Metamorphosis, or HIM. But you might know them better by another name. This is the story of the infamous Heaven's Gate Cult. It's so weird and far out. That's what the Newport, Oregon Sheriff's Detective Ron Sutton told the LA Times as he fielded phone calls from frantic families looking for their missing relatives following the Waldport, Oregon meeting in 1975. However, the overwhelming opinion of law enforcement about the situation was that these people were simply Hippie types apt to wander off at the summons of any Pied Piper. This was the 1970s after all. New Age spiritualism was sweeping the nation. In the wake of the division over the civil rights movement, the continuation of the Vietnam War, and various political scandals like Watergate, people were becoming delusioned in the American life in general, seeking relief from psychological turmoil and a yearning for a more fulfilling life. Many were susceptible to charismatic leaders cropping up and preaching a better way. I covered Jonestown in a previous episode. The Jonestown massacre of almost 1,000 of Jim Jones followers took place in 1978, but Jones's People's Temple was at the height of its popularity in 1975. The mid-1970s were the heyday of the cult, and the two were yet another iteration of two shepherds looking to collect a herd of lost souls. Who were these two? In 1975, they were going by Bo and Peep, signifying that they were indeed the shepherds of their flock. But their real names were Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles. Marshall Herf Applewhite Jr. was born in the tiny town of Spur on May 17, 1931, to parents Louise and Marshall Harriff Applewhite Sr. Marshall grew up a religious wanderer. His father was a Presbyterian minister who moved the family around South Texas, building churches and preaching the gospel. Years later, the New York Times interviewed people who knew the elder Applewhite in those days and said he was a charmer who could easily build congregations at new churches. Perhaps his son picked up a thing or two. As a young man, Applewhite decided to follow in his father's footsteps and studied to be a minister, but he soon discovered his true passion was for music. While attending Austin College in the early 50s, Applewhite sang in a cappella choir and studied music and philosophy. Before graduating in 1952, he immediately enrolled in a Presbyterian seminary to become a preacher, but abandoned the ambition in favor of a career in music. 
That same year, he married a woman named Annie Pierce, and the couple moved to Gastonia, North Carolina. He became the director of music at the First Presbyterian Church and held the position until he was drafted into the Army in 1954. Applewhite spent two years abroad in Salzburg, Austria, before being honorably discharged in 1956, at which point he began a decade of job hopping. Friends and family who knew him in his early life described Applewhite as charismatic, charming, and fun to be around. He was attractive and magnetic, a born leader with loads of natural talent. By 1968, he and his wife had divorced, and Applewhite moved to New York City to try to make it as a professional singer. Allegedly, Applewhite realized his romantic preference for men and was struggling with his sexuality during this period. Within a few months, Applewhite abandoned his singing career and took a job as an assistant professor at the University of Alabama. But that move was also short-lived. He was supposedly let go after having an affair with a male student. In 1970, he was back in Texas teaching in the music department at a university in Houston. But by the end of the year, he had resigned and was experiencing a nervous breakdown. He wound up seeking psychiatric treatment in the hospital, where he met the woman who would change his life forever, Bonnie Lou Nettles. Bonnie Lou Nettles was four years older than Applewhite, and when she met him in 1970, she worked as a neonatal nurse in a Houston hospital. She grew up in Texas in a strict Baptist household though she maintained an impressive knowledge of the Christian Bible. Bonnie moved away from the Baptist church as she got older. Married with four children, Nettles dabbled in spiritualism and the occult in her spare time, and per Applewhite's writings, enjoyed a small astrology practice. Not much is known about Bonnie Nettles' early life, but by the time she met Applewhite in that Houston hospital, she was restless and looking for a new path. According to a 1997 New York Times article, Nettles started performing seances to summon the dead and claimed that she took guidance from a 19th century monk named Brother Francis. When she met Applewhite, she told him she believed they were destined to come together for a higher calling. And at that point, he had already become obsessed with an approaching Armageddon. He was primed and ready to become spiritually awakened with Bonnie Nettles. In hindsight, it seems these two were psychologically vulnerable people who came together at the exact right moment in their lives. The pair became inseparable from the time that they met. Applewhite even moved into the home Nettles shared with her husband and four teenagers. Applewhite later told reporters, I felt I had known her forever. They tried to go into business together by opening a store called the Christian Arts Center, where they peddled books of New Age philosophy. But the shop failed quickly. 
They tried again with a new nook called No Place, but the effort failed miserably as well. Those were depressing times for the pair, but they brought them closer together. They were purportedly soulmates of sorts, but their relationship didn't involve sex. It was a partnership of the heart, but it wrecked Nettle's marriage just the same. By 1973, they had lost all faith in their current circumstances and decided to shed their Houston lives in favor of a nomadic lifestyle of spiritual self-discovery. Applewhite had been out of contact with his ex-wife and children since his divorce in 1968, but Nettles had to abandon her kids to go on this soul-searching journey. They ditched most of their possessions, but kept a convertible and went on the road on January 1st, 1973. They spent the next several months driving around Texas, the Midwest, and the East Coast, reading philosophy and talking to various religious sects. They pawned what they didn't give away, worked odd jobs, skipped out on motel and restaurant bills, and stole to sustain themselves. They claimed they didn't follow earthly laws, only God's laws which is how they justified their criminal behavior. Their first official convert was a Texas woman named Sharon Morgan, and she joined them in their monastic journey for a little over a month before returning to her family. In 1974, the two were arrested in Brownsville, Texas for using Morgan's credit cards, but the charges were eventually dropped by Morgan's husband. Then, in St. Louis, Missouri, Applewhite rented a car and never returned it, landing him a charge of auto theft and six months in jail. While Applewhite sat in jail, he wrote the first of many manifestos, claiming he and Nettles were messengers of God. The document would become the key to getting their fledgling religion off the ground in the years that followed. Nettles went back to Houston and worked as a registered nurse to pay for Applewhite's lawyers and earn money for the next leg of their journey. When he got out, they bought a car and camping equipment and went west. Nettles and Applewhite journeyed to Gold Beach, Oregon and camped in isolation by the Rogue River for several months in 1975. It's here they say they experienced their great awakening by a way of message from God. They believed they were the two witnesses of the apocalypse mentioned in the book of Revelations. They emerged touting the message that they were here to usher the faithful to the next level or the level above human. This was believed to be a physical manifestation of heaven. And now, for a quick break. Do you love true crime, but are looking for something different? It sounds like a sitcom. It does. The Benders. The kind of assholes you should probably leave them alone. Do you like learning about cases so off the wall they can't possibly be true? Her wig is enormous, but it is lifted off her head by a monkey 
Do you love history, but want to hear about what they didn't teach you in school? It's just got a almost where you hang your horns sign. <laughs> Do you like laughing awkwardly about cases that are bizarre and a little strange? They'd be able to wield so many knives with all of their little arms. <laughs> then we have the podcast for you. Join me, Lindsay. And me, Madison, for Ye old Crime. Where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. Listen every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime. Now, back to the show. They foretold that they would be assassinated in the streets while preaching their gospel and resurrected within three days via a UFO beaming them up to space. When this great, in quotations, demonstration happened, any of their followers present at that time would be beamed up as well. After that, the world would be, in their words, recycled. In essence, they were the second coming of Jesus Christ, the saviors of the faithful. The earth was doomed. All they needed now was a flock to shepherd to the promised land. They mailed copies of Applewhite's prison manifesto to New Age spiritual groups all over the West Coast. Then they traveled from city to city staying in motels and campgrounds, hosting meetings to talk about their philosophy and their upcoming expedition to space. They needed fellow travelers on this upcoming space mission, they said. They went by the name Human Individual Metamorphosis and emphasized making a personal transformation, both psychologically and biologically out of their human form into a higher being. Members who joined had to walk away from everything in their lives, including careers, spouses, children, friends, sex, vices, and all earthly possessions. They held workshops in secluded campgrounds that they nicknamed classrooms, where they would lead their followers into a personal transformation. There were 17 behavioral guidelines for students. Number one, can you follow instructions without adding your own interpretation? Number two, can you deliver instructions as you receive them or do they change according to your computer? Number three, do you participate in inconsiderate conversation, polluting the ears of others while you and your partner work things out? Number four, are you physically clumsy, breaking things because you handle them too harshly or carelessly? Number five, do you halfway complete a task because of your poor standard of what is thorough? Number six, do you put tasks off? Procrastinate? Number seven. Are your patterns of cleanliness, sensitivity, gentleness, etc. consistent? Or are they good only when spotlighted? Number eight. Do you use more of something than is adequate? For example, excessively high cooking flame, 
more toothpaste than necessary, etc. Number nine, do you go from one extreme to another, from overeating to undereating? Number 10, are you sensitive when approaching another individual about something you want to discuss? Do you permit that individual the choice to continue what he is doing? Or do you force him to drop it in order to give attention to you? Do you stop and check? Or do you assume that what is on your mind is more important than what is on theirs? Know the difference between your relationship with your teachers and your fellow classmates in this regard. Number 11. Do you needlessly ask a question when the answer is obvious? or a moment of silent observation would quickly reveal an answer? Number 12. Are you pushy, aggressive, interfering, or demanding in any way? Number 13. Has familiarity caused you to become so relaxed with your partners or others that your actions or words don't hold enough restraint? Number 14. Are you gentle, simple, cautious, and thoughtfully restrained in your steps and all other physical actions or words? Number 15. Have you outgrown defensiveness and its flip side? Number 16. Can you understand and review in your mind all the ways in which members of the next level are sensitive? If you can, you have no excuse for not working on improving in these areas at all times. Number 17. When your teachers have asked someone to do a task and it relates to you, do you treat that task and its deliverers with as much respect as you would if it came directly from your teachers? Their first real jolt of recruiting momentum came when a Los Angeles New Age philosopher named Clarence Klug, invited Nettles and Applewhite, or Bo and Peep, as they were calling themselves then, to the home of a fellow spiritualist. Over 80 people gathered at the request of Klug and the home's owner, Janet Culpepper, to hear the message of the so-called two. They arrived wearing matching sweatsuits with short cropped haircuts. According to the New York Times, who interviewed several people present during the 1975 meeting, Applewhite said, We are the two prophesied in Revelation. God has sent us here as an experiment. So you might call us Guinea and Pig. In 1997, Janet Culpepper, the meeting host, told the LA Times, they laid it on the line that night. They were very stern. There was not any kind of loving kindness or nurturing. They said they would die, be assassinated, and anyone who followed would travel with them on a spaceship to a higher level, to heaven. When they had finished, this riveting call to action, over 20 people signed up to follow Bo and Peep to Oregon. Culpepper decided to go with them, but not because she bought into their message, 
but because she was scared that something wasn't right about the two. What had she gotten her friends into? After six weeks of openly questioning the philosophies and teachings of Nettles and Applewhite in front of their followers, Culpepper and a friend were ousted from the group. They went back to Los Angeles and Culpepper started operating a halfway house for members of the group who wanted out. She eventually earned the nickname Judas from Nettles, Applewhite, and their dedicated followers. Membership during the period of the cult's existence exploded to almost 200 by early 1976. Their followers became disciples eager to spread the message far and wide via independent workshops. This period of recruitment is often referred to as the harvest. But when the two and their disciples found their way to Waldport, Oregon in 1975 and managed to recruit 20 more members from within the single community, the negative media attention sent them into a tailspin. People were laughing at them. The press openly mocked the UFO cult. The two came under scrutiny. When would they perform their grand demonstration of being assassinated and resurrected? So they could then escort their followers to the idling spaceship, waiting to transport them to the next level. As time passed without action, membership in the group went into decline. At recruiting meetings, the group started getting heckled. At their last public meeting in April 1976, Nettles stood up and told the taunting crowd, the harvest is closed. After nine months of widespread recruiting, Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles decided it was time to take the group underground. The first harvest had ended. Those who didn't make the cut had missed their chance. The human individual metamorphosis cult found its way to Wyoming and the Medicine Bow National Forest. Nettles and Applewhite, or Tea and Doe, as they were known after renaming themselves yet again, were ready to teach their remaining 70 students how to prepare for the next level. T and Doe preached the suppression of all human desires and sense of self. That included pleasure-seeking habits like having sex and smoking, as well as personality needs like seeking attention and trusting your own judgment. They claimed you could shed your humanness and be free from its bonds. Anything that made a person an individual was expressly forbidden. Cult members all wore the same unisex tracksuits, sneakers, and kept their hair cut above their ears to keep the men indistinguishable from the women. The next level was supposed to be genderless, so they had to emulate that in preparation. Plus, it helped reduce sexual urges among members. To keep members in line, each person had a check partner or a person they were paired with to ensure they were following the rules. 
anyone who violated the rules had two choices. Either stop the behavior or leave. Those who stayed had to relinquish any and all sense of self to become a part of the kingdom of heaven. When someone new joined the group, they shed their old human name and received a next level name that started with three letters and ended with Adi, which stood for little member. One example is Sarati. When the person became an adult, they dropped the Y and became odd. The group moved nomadically from campground to campground until the late 1970s when they began taking short-term leases on houses. Money was no longer an issue. David Van Sinderen brought with him a trust fund with an estimated $300,000 value. Shockingly, Nettles and Applewhite didn't demand David shed this earthly possession upon entering the group and instead lived quite comfortably for the next several years. Usually T and Doe rented a separate house or apartment than the rest of the group who lived communally. When the money did run low, the members got jobs on the outside. In order to maintain complete control over the group, Nettles and Applewhite only allowed people to get low-paying jobs that wouldn't require too much identity verification. Then, as they became more comfortable, they allowed their members to get jobs according to their skills. They were highly skilled and educated people in their ranks, from computer programmers and developers to master mechanics. The group was fully capable of being self-sufficient. During the early 80s, the group was hounded by family members of followers who sent private detectives after them. Because T and Doe required their members to cut off all communication with people in their former lives, relatives were often left wondering if their family members were alive or dead. Some relatives, like Nancy Brown, became crusaders against the group. Brown's oldest son, David Jeffrey Moore, joined the cult in 1975, and she began traveling the country searching for him and also profiling former members to understand what attracted educated, middle-class people from good families to give up everything for a monastic UFO cult. As a result of these meddling families, T and Doe moved their group often, never staying in one place too long, usually no longer than six months. The group was quiet and didn't draw a lot of attention to themselves, so they stayed under the radar. There was quite a bit of hypocrisy in the no contact rule, however. Bonnie Nettles continued to keep in contact with her daughter, Terry. She wrote letters and made long phone calls during which they would discuss what was going on in Terry's life. And now, for a quick break. Do you enjoy scary stories? Can you hear me? But you don't know where to begin? Am I alive? Stories about haunted objects? Am I real? Haunted places? Help me. And the paranormal? Free me. Stories that will send chills up your spine? 
from the darkest places known to mankind. <sighs> then please go search for Scary Time on your favorite podcast platform to find some of the best indie creators to satisfy your craving of fear. Now, back to the show. In one letter, Nettles even advised Terry to conform to the ways of the world, which was completely contrary to her teachings with Heaven's Gate. In 1985, a significant tragedy happened within the group that changed the trajectory of its future as well as the scope of its teachings. Bonnie Nettles, aka T, developed cancer of the eye. Despite having the eye removed, the cancer spread and she died. Her death shook the group to its core because the whole belief system was based on the belief that a follower would undergo a biological transformation and turn into a flawless alien form in the next level. As in your body would physically change as you were taken to the ship. Their followers believed they would all be taken to a UFO together and be transported to a physical heaven. It was known as their graduation. After Nettles died an innately human death, Applewhite had to rebrand. According to sociologist Hanja Lilac, the biggest draw of this belief system was its promise to, of overcoming death. Members who were loyal and worked hard enough were supposed to be saved from death. Applewhite's teachings shifted to a spiritual transformation rather than a physical one. Applewhite claimed Nettles had abandoned her vehicle and was guiding him from the next level. After Nettles died, Applewhite took the cult in a different direction that was more in line with Christianity. He declared himself the Messiah, i.e. Jesus reborn, and Nettles became God the Father in a strange symbolic rebirthing ceremony. He made each of the members marry him. In a loyalty test, he gave each of the members $100 and asked them what they would buy for themselves. The answer, of course, was a wedding ring to symbolize their marriage to Applewhite and to the journey through Heaven's Gate. Surprisingly, even though their lives revolved around cult doctrine, strict celibacy, genderless clothing, and rigid daily routine, members were allowed to watch television shows and films, but only science fiction-themed programs approved by Applewhite. They were allowed to watch Star Wars, Cocoon, and the Close Encounters of the Third Kind, as well as The X-Files. Star Trek was a crowd favorite, one of the members actually had a sibling who played a role on the show. In the early 1990s, Applewhite launched another harvest and resumed recruitment efforts. Operating under the name Higher Source, the group established a website and began recruiting new members via chat rooms. Unfortunately for Applewhite, 
People in the digital age were much less receptive to his message than they were back in the 1970s. Applewhite started to experience cyberbullying in these chat rooms. People questioned his message and called him insane. His grip on reality began to slip further away. When group member Stephen McCarter, known as Rhodey, became overwhelmed by sexual fantasies, he brought up the idea of castration to his leader. Applewhite was intrigued. They had all taken a vow of celibacy already. So what was the point in struggling with those pesky sexual urges? A fellow member was a trained nurse, and eight or nine men, including McCarter and Applewhite, decided to undergo the procedure of having their testicles removed. McCarter wanted to go first, so he laid down on a table in the house they were renting at the time and let the fellow member cut open his scrotum and retrieve his testes. Something went wrong though, and his scrotum started to swell. Things got so bad that the members eventually had to take him to a hospital. Fearing a police investigation, a fellow member named Sawyer took McCarter's testicles and threw them off a bridge. After that, the men who still wanted to undergo castration waited until they could find a doctor who would be willing to perform the procedure, which they did. All in all, it's believed nine men were castrated in the Heaven's Gate cult. Membership was shrinking rapidly by 1995, and the castration procedures probably didn't help matters. Even though Applewhite was broadcasting Heaven's Gate on a fancy website and doing publicity campaigns on any radio show that would have him, people just weren't interested in his message anymore. His pride in tatters, his ego crushed, and his health worsening, he decided it was time to move on from the degraded planet Earth into the next level. He just needed a proper sign that the spaceship was coming to get them. Enter the Hale-Bopp Comet, named for the two men who discovered it in early 1995. The Hale-Bopp Comet was believed to be making its orbit around the Earth for the first time in 4,200 years. As it became visible, astrologists spotted a celestial UFO, which was probably space debris in its wake. And that was all Marshall Applewhite needed to hear. That was the ship coming to take them to the next level. He sat the group down and told them this was it. He approached the idea of them voluntarily leaving their vehicles by committing suicide in order to be ready for the journey. This discussion frightened some members and scared a few of them away. But 38 cult members enthusiastically agreed to Applewhite's plan. This was the moment that it, they had all been waiting for. Some of the members had been with Applewhite since 1975. They had prepared for over two decades to transform into their higher alien forms and descend into heaven. Best of all, 
Applewhite pointed out, they would get to rejoin T, their dearly departed co-founder and also known as Bonnie Nettles. The preparations took some time. Astrologists estimated the comet would be at its closest point to the Earth by the end of March 1997. At the end of 1996, the Heaven's Gate cult rented a mansion, nicknamed the Monastery, in an upper-class San Diego neighborhood called Rancho Santa Fe. They ran an online business creating websites inside the house while maintaining strict procedures about who could be outside and when. So the neighbors had no clue there were 40 people living inside. Other than meal trips to chain restaurants where they all ordered the same food and drink, the group went about their daily lives as normal right up until a few weeks before their planned exit. The group had insignia patches made for their clothing that read Heaven's Gate Away Team and sewed them to their uniforms. Each member packed the bag for the trip and kept 545 in their pocket. The money was supposed to be their fare to the next level. According to former members, they derived that amount from a Mark Twain story. Apparently, 575 was how much it cost to ride the tail of a comet. Applewhite wanted everyone left behind to understand that the group's mission and to know that no one was graduating to the next level under duress. So they filmed each other talking about how excited they were to beam up. The tapes showed men and women with shaved heads giddy with excitement over their journey. They look genuinely happy to be saying what they're saying. Applewhite made a tape called Doe's Final Exit, which detailed the group's belief system. He warned non-believers that the earth was about to be recycled. The only salvation was to journey with him to the next level. When they were finally ready, they made several copies of these tapes, sealed them in packages, and mailed them to former Heaven's Gates members and the BBC. When the parcels finally arrived, the cult's final exit would already be complete. In the early afternoon on March 21st, 1997, 39 people dressed in loose-fitting black shirts and pants and wearing black Nike sneakers walked into a Marie Callender's restaurant and sat down. They were smiling and happy as they each ordered the same thing, turkey pot pie, iced tea, and cheesecake with blueberries. Waiters at the restaurant had seen them before, and nothing looked amiss. No one suspected they were feasting on their last meal. After finishing and paying the bill, the Heaven's Gate cult went home. They split themselves into three shifts, and as the Hale-Bopp comet made its approach to Earth, one shift after another ate bowls of pudding or applesauce laced with a lethal dose of phenobarbital. They washed it down with glasses of vodka then lay down on their assigned cot. 
Finally, when a member was close to losing consciousness, they put a plastic bag over their head to ensure they died. Each person had someone to watch over them during the final exit to make sure things went smoothly. Once the person was dead, their spotter removed the plastic bag and placed a purple shroud over their body. The whole mass suicide took three days to finish. On March 25th, a member named Rio D'Angelo received a package with his name on it. Inside, he found Marshall Applewhite's final exit tape and the exit recordings of the 38 other members. Rio already knew what was going to happen. He left Heaven's Gate just one week before the suicides because he claimed he had a vision that he needed to write about the group. Applewhite agreed, and Rio left. It was Rio who found the bodies and then placed an anonymous call to 911. When police arrived, the bodies had already been decomposing for several days. After taking a curious glance and counting 39 bodies with shaved heads, they reported 39 male victims. They didn't realize that there were actually 21 women and 18 men until the medical examiner looked at the corpse. The suicides shocked the world and caused a media frenzy. They also inspired mockery. A famous SNL skit with Will Ferrell appeared soon after, and the story made the rounds on popular nighttime comedy shows. No one could believe that a normal person could fall for such a scheme in Heaven's Gate. The truth is that these were educated, well-adjusted people who lived productive lives before becoming indoctrinated in a belief system that stripped them of all independent thought. The manipulation of the daily routines and the check partners appealed to their human nature to assimilate to the group. Group influence is tough to overcome, especially in tight-knit organizations like Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate is a tragedy that lives on through the family members who lost loved ones. It continues to haunt those who were left behind. Since the initial 39 suicides, at least three more former members have killed themselves to join the others in the next level. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Jury Room Podcast. Heaven's Gate, man. I remember this as a child. It happened when I was young and just a sad, sad story. But join me on the next episode as I'm joined by guests. As we discuss Heaven's Gate and cultish behaviors. Thanks for listening and stay safe.
Growing up as a latchkey kid in a small town in Maine, I always assumed I was safe. After all, unless it makes national news, murder isn't something people talk about around here. But that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Murder, She Told is a true crime podcast featuring crime stories, unsolved murders of missing persons, and baffling cold cases from my home state of Maine, New England, and small towns across America. These are the crime stories your hometown doesn't want to talk about. The mysteries buried deep in the newspaper archives of local American history. These are the homicides you've probably never heard of before. Through detailed storytelling and connections with family, friends, and investigators closest to the case, Murder, She Told will hit home for any true crime fan, whether you're from Maine or from away. Visit MurderSheTold.com to suggest your hometown crime story. And subscribe now wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Kristen Seavey, and this is Murder, She Told.